Well, children, in the bulletin, you'll notice your words for this evening that you're listening for. Those words are evil, suffering, sin, death, repentance, or repent, uh, grace, forgiveness, and of course, Jesus Christ. All right? Those are your words for this evening. The Holocaust, the World Trade Center bombing, the Orlando nightclub shooting, the Indian Ocean and uh, Tohoku tsunamis, the Haitian earthquakes, Hurricane Katrina, the Spanish flu, the coronavirus, AIDS. I could go on. I'm not exhausting the categories by any, any means, but I think I've been representative enough for you to get, um, for you to understand and for me to make my point. All of these events at some point in time have been interpreted by others, particularly around the time when they happened. People seem to stand in line to give their two cents on what had happened and and what the purpose was behind what happened. And it's a normal phenomenon for uh, for us to make those calls or to define those things or to give our two cents worth when evil rears its ugly head or when people suffer. The humanistic atheist says that those impacted were simply victims of random events that had no meaning whatsoever, and the events and the consequences prove that there is no all-good, all-powerful God. The Muslim would explain those events and, and their consequences as the result of fate. Allah simply willed it to be. The Hindu says that basically everyone that was affected by those things all got what they deserved. It was was karma. They had it coming. And even many professing Christians on those occasions or on these occasions that I mentioned attempted to read the signs and and interpret God's providence, unfortunately, in in Hindu-like fashion, really pronouncing them to be events of God's judgment on those specifically involved who must have in some form or fashion, in some way, brought it upon themselves due to their sin, or they were acts of God's judgment on those cities or countries in in which those events took place. These events also bring or brought uh, out another group, a different group altogether, um, And they begin to question, when these things happen, they begin to ask the question that Rabbi Harold Kushner made famous in 1981. And that question is, why do bad things happen to good people? This group doesn't reject God, but it rejects an all-powerful God. Their God is limited, and in the words of Rabbi Kushner, He's limited by the laws of nature and by the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom. So really, in the end, for for the rabbi, uh, uh, 
man is good and God is impotent. The Bible, of course, explains evil and suffering in, in a different way. Um, it does say that God sometimes judges and disciplines individuals and cities and nations. It does say uh, that we do suffer the consequences of our own uh, sinful actions. But it also says that we live in a fallen world. It says that we live in a world that is disordered and chaotic because it is presently under a curse. And in Paul's words, it's in bondage to corruption and is groaning. Or, or, yeah, groaning for its freedom. And this fallen world is not full of good people. This world is full of people who are corrupt spiritually and physically and emotionally and mentally and volitionally and behaviorally. And all of that is a result of original sin, of that rebellion in the garden in which Adam and Eve rejected the authority of God and they rejected the fellowship He offered as their Creator. And they passed that fallenness on to us. So evil and suffering should not surprise us in any way. In a a fallen world full of fallen people, the question shouldn't be, why is there evil and suffering? The question really should be, why is there not more evil and suffering within this world? So in the end, really, when we think about it, answering the question or answering uh, the why questions or interpreting these events, the, the evil and the suffering in the world, isn't as easy, it's not as simple, and it's definitely not as prudent as many believe it to be. And our passage tonight, though, provides help. It actually provides help for us in, in this area. The first nine verses that Aaron just read, in those verses, Jesus says something that will not only give us direction when those things happen, but they will help us give direction to others when those things happen. Because we, we, we can interpret suffering, um, and He gives us direction on how to do so, but it may surprise you how He does that, what, what direction that He actually provides, because it's not something that we would guess that He would say, it's not something that we would even come up with on our own in, in, in any shape, form, or fashion. And that's because rather than direct us to blame others, which is typical, uh, rather than uh, to formulate an answer that's inadequate or one that defends the objections that others have in regard to our faith and our God, the Lord Jesus directs us to repent. Our outline is going to look like this. It's in the back of your bulletin, Um, and I have to apologize because I changed midstream this week and I failed to correct that in the bulletin. So the bulletin actually is is wrong. Uh, The first few words are right, but what, what trails is not. So the four things we're going to look at, how not to interpret suffering, how to interpret suffering, how to respond to suffering, and the hope that results from suffering. How not to, how to, how to respond, and the hope 
that comes from it. And as is our custom, let's pray before we begin. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to uh, the preaching of your Word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? And would you grant all of us the ability to uh, appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His gospel? In these moments, awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and then refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I am I'm weak and needy to this task, and so I, I pray and, and ask that you would grant me uh, grace and support and strength. You would fill me with your spirit that, that I might do something good for you this evening, good for your church. Help me to communicate clearly and with fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us, uh, and even if, even if you have, I, I want to go back to chapter 12 for just a brief minute to set the context. Right? We need to know what's been happening to know how he's continuing in, in the conversation or in the dialogue that's been taking place, okay? Um, not only has he said that judgment is coming, uh, he has said that judgment is near, he being Christ. And, and the warning that Jesus has been given, giving has been very, very clear. There's, there's no mistaking what he's been saying. He's, he said, be ready. Um, we need to be responsible and not to be reckless. We need to uh, watch expectantly. We need to wait uh, selflessly. And we need to work faithfully as we're awaiting his return. But he's also been clear that that watching and that working and that waiting is going to be very difficult because it's going to take place in a context um, in which he has come. It's a difficult context because he says, or he has said that he came to bring division and not peace. Yes, he's come to reconcile people to God. And of course, we know that um, if anyone will look to Christ, right, repent of their sin and look to Christ in faith. He will forgive them of their sins, and they will experience peace with God. They will experience peace within themselves, and they will experience peace with other people. But doing so comes at a cost. And he said that, and he's been emphatic with what he said. He said, it's time to make a choice. It's either count the cost or pay the price. It's one or the other. It always has been. And he told the crowd, and it was as plain as the nose on their faces, right? He said, listen... You can, you can see the weather and you know how to make plans based on the weather. You ought to know that everything that's been going on, the signs that have been given, the things that I've been proclaiming, the ministry that I've been uh, involved in and the healings that I've been performing, they all point to the fact that I am the Messiah. I'm the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah who came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and who will provide forgiveness and freedom from the bondage of sin and death for those who will look to me. He said that the kingdom was something that they would receive by grace alone, through faith alone, and Him alone, and that they better settle up now because the eternal, et eternal debt that they owed for their sin was coming due. And that they could either throw themselves on the mercy of God and of the court and make a plea make a plea deal, trusting in Christ who will pay the debt for any and all who ask, or they can try to pay the debt themselves. And, and if they choose the first option, they're going to live eternally with Him. And if they choose the second option, they're going to live eternally separated from Him. 
Choose a first option, spend eternity in hell, uh, heaven. Uh, choose a second option, spend eternity in hell. Again, two options. And so when he finishes, here Luke says in verse 1 of chapter 13, uh, a person responds. And the person does what we would expect him to do. And, and what normally happens when someone's confronted with their sin Right? They, they speak up and they attempt to prove Jesus wrong and shift the guilt away from them because they're convicted of their sin. And so he breaks through the crowd and, and he says, Jesus, I can read the signs. I can, I can see what's going on. I can interpret the present time. Is that, that group who was at, who was at worship... And as they're sacrificing, as they're slaughtering, really, slaughtering and, and sacrificing those animals in worship, you know, those ones that Pilate came while that was going on and actually slaughtered them and then mixed their blood together, they got what they deserved. That was judgment. Judgment upon them by God. And so that broke the ice, Right? And so somebody, apparently, someone else comes up and says, I can read the times too. I can see what's going on. I mean, remember when that tower fell in Siloam and killed those 18 people? God's judgment. They had it coming. They were sinners. And God brought it down on their heads. And the two, if you think about it, if, you, if you're as old as I am, if you're not, you may not be familiar with him, but... Uh, the two sound a great deal like Pat Robertson has over the last 20 years. He sought to explain strokes of world leaders and terrorist attacks and tsunamis and hurricanes, and, but he's not alone. Others do it as well. There have been countless others who have attributed natural disasters and, and the evil of men and the suffering of men, and, and they and they attribute that to the judgment of God due to the sins of individuals and cities and countries. But here's the problem. The two in the text were not only limited in their knowledge and understanding of, of the situations themselves, they were also limited in their knowledge and understanding of the people involved and most importantly, they were limited in the knowledge and understanding of, to quote our confession, the unsearchable wisdom and infallible knowledge of God and the free and unchangeable counsel of His own will. A will, by the way, that is behind His providence or His upholding, directing, disposing, and governing all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least that extends even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men. And of course, the same can be said of Mr. Robertson and any others who have followed in his foot uh, footsteps. And, and we must be honest, that includes many, if not all of us, in this room tonight who are not above making the same mistake. Was there a correlation between the event and sin? Yes. Was there a direct one-to-one -one causation? No. In other words, was there a relationship between what happened and sin? Yes, sin has brought death. But was there 
a direct relationship between what happened and the particular sins of those particular people. And it appears from Jesus' response that that wasn't the case. So how should they have responded? Look at verses 2 and 4. Jesus says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? The language there is, do you think they were more in debt to God than anybody else because they suffered in this way? And he says, no. And in verse 4 he says, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed him, do you think that they were any worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He says, no. Their remarks betrayed them. In their minds, those who died obviously deserved the obvious judgment that they had received for their sin. And in their minds, they themselves did not deserve the same thing. They were, in their minds, they themselves were much like the Pharisee that we're going to see in just a few chapters. And they believed that they weren't like other sinners. And we're grateful for it. And Jesus looks at them right in the eyes and says very clearly, rather than focus your attention on the sins of others, you need to be focusing your attention on your own. He says, they're no worse than you are and you're no better than they were. You shouldn't be thinking they got what they deserved. You should be thinking, I'm glad I haven't gotten what I deserved. Their suffering and pain shouldn't lead you to dwell upon their sin. It should lead you to consider your own. Their unfortunate end shouldn't puff you up at all. It should humble you and cause you to examine your heart. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just leave them in that place of self-examination. He then directs them to respond. How are you going to respond? How should we respond to suffering? And in verses 3 and 5, he says the same thing. says it twice. Emphasizes it. He says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And it really, it really seems odd, does it not? Not the answer anybody's expecting. But let it sink in. Because he's saying, take the next step, right? Start in that self-examination, but take the next step. Don't think that you know, just because you've come to this place where I'm glad I haven't gotten, or, or don't just think I'm glad I haven't gotten what I, uh, what I deserved. As you consider your sin and as you humble yourself and examine yourself, it should lead you to repentance. And of course, the question that we then ask is, well, what is repentance? What is he saying that should lead us to? What does that look like? And our, our shorter catechism helps us define what repentance is. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred in this, of his sin, turns from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. 
In other words, repentance is a gift that God grants that involves significant change in the life of the one who repents. It involves a change of mind where we come to the place of, of understanding the full sense of our sin and we we acknowledge and admit and agree with God that we're sinners and we agree with Him that He's right and we're wrong. But it also involves a change of our emotions. We no longer love our sin, but we hate and grieve and mourn over it. Not, not over the consequences and not over getting caught, but we grieve and, and, hate, and or hate and grieve and mourn our sin itself. And it also involves a change in our wills. We choose to turn away from our sin and turn toward God, and we determined within ourselves to strive to live differently in obedience to Him. And in those changes in our, in our minds and in our hearts and in our wills, that leads to fruit of repentance. It leads to a change of behavior, change in actions. As Calvin once said, repentance is an inward matter which has its seed in the heart and soul, but afterwards yields its fruit in a changed life. One who turns from their sin does not remain the same. One who turns from their sin leads a changed life. And Jesus doesn't say if Apart from repentance or if you don't repent that you're going to die, we're all going to die whether we repent or not. He says if you don't repent, you're going to perish. You're going to experience the judgment that all suffering points to. All suffering points to that that judgment in which the, the wrath of a holy and righteous and just God is going to come, and it's going to come at the end of the age when He shall come to judge both the living and the dead. Fortunately, He doesn't stop, stop there. He doesn't stop there, and He didn't stop there because God is not only holy and righteous and just, He's also merciful, gracious, good, and kind, and loving. And when it comes to repentance, apprehending and appraising the mercy of God is as important as sensing, uh, having a true sense of our sin. Did you hear it in the confession? Let me read it again. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief, hatred of sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. A true sense of sin, but an apprehension of the mercy of God. And so that that group listening to him would, in fact, apprehend that mercy, he tells this parable. There's a lot going on in this parable. I told Aaron before, we can't plumb the depths of this parable. We'll come back to this parable later in Luke. Um, 
but for tonight, we apprehend his mercy, okay? He says this, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it rise up out of the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it and put on manure, then if it doesn't bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Listen to these words of Philip Ryken. God had cultivated Israel to be a fruitful tree in His vineyard. Thus, He had every right to expect them to bear good fruit. They had every spiritual advantage. The Word of God in Scripture, the promises of the covenant, and the sacrifices of atonement. Now, they were in the presence of the Messiah. Therefore, they should bear the abundant fruit of obedience to God. The problem was they weren't. They weren't bearing fruit. And again, while Jesus gives this stern warning, make no mistake, it is a very stern warning of the dangers of fruitlessness and the travesty of just taking up space and wasting time and resources that could be used on others, the warning at the same time was gracious. It was gracious and merciful. He was communicating the mercy and grace and kindness and love and patience of God. Yes, Time was. Time is short. But there's time. And the suffering in the world that they observed and even experienced was a means by which the Lord was bringing or would bring about the fruit of repentance. Right? It was that suffering and that in that evil that would till up around the tree. It would be that manure laid around the base. And he says the Lord would bring repentance before the axe, before they could be cut down by the axe, that if you'll remember... Right, time is short because remember where that axe is from Luke chapter 3? It's already up against the root of the tree. This is as difficult to preach as it is to hear, brothers and, brothers and sisters. Um, so what are our takeaways? What are the takeaways tonight? And this is, there are more than I can share, as there always are, and it's one of the reasons why we, um, you know, the importance of being in our small groups where we talk about these passages when we get together, because you can not only discuss the takeaways that I give you, but 
you can discuss the takeaways that you yourselves have um, that you've identified and want to share, but I've got four. Um, so let, let me share those with you. First, let, let me encourage all of us to refrain uh, from wrongly interpreting the suffering of others. Strong encouragement for us to, to not do that. Listen to these words of Ligon Duncan. He says, every time tragedy strikes, one of the things we ought to do is to recognize that there's a message of repentance in that tragedy, but not to them, to us. A message of repentance to us. And so, let us also, not only are we going to refrain from interpreting the, the suffering of others, let's, let's refrain from in, in interpreting our own suffering. Is there a direct, direct causation between sin and our suffering? Sometimes, yes. Right? We bring some of that on ourselves through our choices that we make. We cannot deny that. We don't need to push it aside. We don't need to ignore it. Let's, let's own it. At the same time, it's not always the case. And so may we too remember these other words from Pastor Duncan. He says to remind that, uh, that um, um, we need to use the suffering that we experience and the evil that we see to remind us to hate our sin as much as we hate our suffering. The next time we're in a situation and, and we're suffering and, and we're broken by it and it's just it's, you know, weighing us down, may it cause us, may it remind us to consider hating our sin as much as we hate that which is causing the suffering. May the suffering we see and experience lead us to lament sin in general and our sins in particular, rather than blame others, um, formulate inappropriate responses, and in some way justify ourselves before other people. Secondly, let's follow Christ's example and begin answering the questions that, that people ask regarding the problem of evil in the same way that He did here. Uh, in, Aaron shared this in a text this week, you know, on the offensive rather than on the defensive. And, and let's stick to what the Bible says and what we know to be true. Let's go to God's Word. And, and remember, the question again, as I said when we began, the question isn't, you know, why is there suffering or why is there evil and suffering? And the question is, why, not, why isn't there more there should be more because of our world and the people that live in it. And the conclusion isn't that God must not exist. You know, there's no such thing as an all-good, all-powerful God. Right? The answer is, the conclusion is, He does exist. And His goodness and His power is displayed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it was Christ whom the Father sent. It was Christ who willingly left His rightful place in glory to step into this fallen world among fallen people and the evil and suffering that exists to do what? To take on suffering, unjust suffering upon Himself in our place. 
And through his death and resurrection, he has conquered sin and death and has secured an eventual restoration of all things when all will be made new. We have the assurance. We have the assurance that one day there will be no more chaos. There will be no more disorder. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more suffering. It is the hope that we have. It will be, ladies, it will be better than Eden. As you studied this past summer. Because evil will not be possible. Evil will not be able to enter in. And that future is only guaranteed for those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith. He is the answer. Thirdly, repentance is not something that we do once um, and never have concern with again or have to concern ourselves with again. Uh, Repentance is something we do daily. Repentance is a way of life. And if we aren't repenting, uh, we are behaviorally and emotionally and cognitively and socially and spiritually unaware. We are either oblivious to our hearts or we're ignoring our hearts. And I encourage all of us to pray and ask the Lord for that saving grace, for the saving grace of repentance that we might grow in our knowledge and understanding of our sin that we might deepen our hatred and our grief and our mourning over our sin, and we might strengthen our resolve to live obediently, and may the fruit of a changed life be exhibited more and more and more. And finally, when we struggle to repent, which we all do, when we struggle when we're in that place, when we don't want to acknowledge our sin, when we, we, we've self-examined and we don't like what we see, and, and sometimes when we look and we, and we see how, how ugly we truly are, I pray that we apprehend the mercy of God, that we'd apprehend the mercy of God in Christ, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, knowing us at our very lowest, Christ came. Christ came and died for us. Having been sent by the Father, He came to undergo the judgment that we deserved for that ugliness, for that sin within us. And so the reality is, if we think about this, right, We know from Paul, he says in Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the truth of the matter is that God was merciful even before we knew we needed mercy. God was merciful before we wanted mercy. And again, in the words of Dr. Duncan, God is more ready to forgive us of our sin than we are to repent of it. Praise God for that. And the news gets even better because he's also never turned anyone away or refused to forgive someone who's repented of their sin, and he never will.
No one has ever repented and found themselves disappointed and let down. Every person who has ever repented has been forgiven by Christ. And you've heard me say this over and over and over again. There is no sin so small that doesn't need the forgiveness of God, but there's, there, there's no sin so great that can't be forgiven by Him. Regardless of what you see and regardless of what you repent of, understand the mercy of God. It's understanding and apprehending that mercy that will draw you out and bring you to a point of repentance. It is the kindness, right? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. To quote Paul. And as Matt said in our confession of sin, the promise is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He died that that might be so. Let's pray.